Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. I am your host, Alyssa. And I'm your host, Ashley. This is our podcast, Two English Majors, One Analysis. A show where we analyze literature to film with reference to pop culture. This is our analysis of passing by Nella Larson. And here is Alyssa with the synopsis. Claire Kendry is living on the edge, light-skinned, elegant, and ambitious. She is married to a racist white man unaware of her African-American heritage and has severed all ties to her past after deciding to pass as a white woman. Claire's childhood friend, Irene Redfield, just as light-skinned, has chosen to remain within the African-American community and is simultaneously allured and repelled by Claire's risky decision to engage in racial masquerade for personal and societal gain. After frequenting African-American-centric gatherings together in Harlem, Claire's interest in Irene turns into a homoerotic longing for Irene's black identity which she abandoned and can never embrace again, and she is forced to grapple with her decision to pass for white in a way that is both tragic and telling. All right, and here is the imdb.com's synopsis of the movie, Passing, follows the unexpected reunion of two high school friends whose renewed acquaintance ignites a mutual obsession that threatens both of their carefully constructed realities. So normally we just do the imdb.com synopsis. However, this week I'm also going to read the Netflix synopsis because Netflix is who released this film. So you can only see this on Netflix right now. So Netflix's synopsis of the movie is, In 1920s New York City, a black woman finds her world upended when her life becomes intertwined with a former childhood friend whose passing is white. Rebecca Hall makes her director directorial re- debut with this intimate drama of racial identity starring Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega. So between the two of those synopsis, I actually like the Netflixes more because I just mm-hmm. feel like it gives more detail. It does, yeah. Even though they do mention, like, the director, who I think, I don't think it's bad to mention the director, but I think it's good that they also mention, like, Tessa Thompson, whom people know from yeah. Marvel. And then Ruth Nega. Exactly. Like, both of those are, you know, pristine actresses who mm-hmm. are respected, so... Yeah, definitely. Although we should say that this is a big spoiler warning, because the... It does have kind of a Im- ambiguous ending, so that is pretty... That w- which we're going to have to share and talk about. So if you really want to see this movie or you want to read the book, do that first before you come listening <laughs> to us, so... I think another thing, too, is, like, this book is really short. It's only, like, 82 pages in most prints... I guess if you have, like, a larger print for the words, it's, it's going to be it's longer. It's got, but... like, an introduction, and then it's got annotations of stuff for the back. So that's that's why it's a bit bigger. It's got some added-on bonus stuff. Let me find it. Well, it was published in uh, 1929. So it was published, and since then, a lot of the copies that you find of it have add-ons in them. Yes. It's... 
like a good portion of this book is really like the introduction, suggestions for further reading, annotations at the end, um, introduction, and just just a lot of other stuff. Uh, Doctor Yoey had quite a quite a thick copy of oh, yeah. the book. Yeah. Well, because her copy included uh, scholarly articles mm-hmm. that were written about it. Yeah. Because, you know, having been written in 1929, there's a lot of time for people to look into this and analyze it. There's there's this, there's just a lot to unpack <laughs> with this one, and usually we're more chipper, but this, this book is a bit more uh, somber in tone in, in general, so... Well, and this movie focuses, this movie and book focuses a lot on class, race, and sexuality. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's got a lot of layers within it, like an onion. <laughs> yeah, that's why we, the whole uh, title of it being passing means so much more than just passing for a different type of race. Yeah, like it can be taken into different meanings. For sure. So one thing that we did want to mention was actually the definition of passing within Google itself. Because if you don't know, passing, when we're talking about in reference to this book, is racial passing, which occurs when a person classified as a member of a group is accepted or perceived as a member of another group. So in this book, we're talking about racial passing, which goes into a black woman who is passing as a white woman in society at this time. And there's another woman who passes occasionally when it's convenient for her, as she states within the book. Yeah, so, like, for example, when I first started reading this book, I was, not gonna lie, I was very confused as to why this character, Irene, was being treated so nicely at the toy store or at the, like, why this cab driver was helping her out up into this very fancy, uh like lounge area up on the roof and then it it turns out like oh that's because she's at this moment she's passing and it it took it took me a while because I was like that I don't know it was just it was weird until you like realize that at that moment like that's what's going on it's not that she was trying to like per se pass it's just what uh she could do it you know so if you could why why wouldn't you especially just for the convenience of you know, being treated decently. Yeah, and one thing that is actually special about our analysis this week is that we, how last week we interviewed Dr. Kolick, this week we kind of got a lot of professors who gave us some feedback because we went to a showing of passing where there was multiple professors not just English professors, but we actually had a sociology professor who was there as well. Wasn't there, like, two math professors, too, yes. down at the, like, right-hand side of us? Yeah. We unfortunately did not talk to the math professors, but they were there. But the sociology professor, who also teaches at NKU, and I've actually had a class with, because my minor is anthropology, mm-hmm. I know yours is as yeah. well, was uh, Joan Ferrante. And so she was there and she gave some helpful insights that we're going to talk about later once we get like more in depth yeah. into the material that we're going to be covering today. Is but it, she I, was very helpful. Yeah, <laughs> I really I really enjoyed the conversation and being able to discuss that at the end and I wish we could have gone on longer with it. It was just very interesting to see like the her professor's mind like work and analyze the movie. It was it was really cool. It was really awesome. I loved it. I very much so enjoyed it. Oh, yeah, we had Dr. Alberti, and then we had Dr. Yoey, who kind of, like, both have 
their specialties, especially like Dr. Yoe even mentioned, like Dr. Alberti's the person to talk to about cinema because he's mm-hmm. over the cinema studies as well as the English. And so... And didn't Dr. Yoe do her dissertation on the passing too? Yeah, so she did her dissertation on passing. And so she has been a longtime fan of passing and she yeah. teaches it. She teaches passing in her English 250 class, which is Intro to English Studies. So it's definitely something that she's passionate about. And I think that that's what made last week's episode so special is Dr. Kolek was very passionate about yes. To Kill a Mockingbird. And then this week we got to get some thoughts from Dr. Yoe, who was very passionate about passing and she's just passionate about racial justice in general so that is something she very much instills into her students is her passion following racial justice so one thing we got feedback on that we really people have really liked is us talking about our first time reading it i think this was a first time for both of us reading this book it it was i remember reading about uh in middle school it was a book called uh fly girl about um this african-american woman trying to pass as white so she could join in the military during world war ii um to fly because her dad was a pilot so she wanted to be a pilot too and so it was just very interesting interesting to be introduced to that at a very young age and then not not think about it really and then to kind of come back to it again when i'm more mature and can think about it in a more in-depth way So this was my first time reading it, and it was short. Like I said, it was only like 82 pages, but I definitely like went through some of the scholarly articles because I felt like it was nice to get a nice hook into the material, mm-hmm. especially because when you're reading about racial topics, it can get kind of dense sometimes because you have to like unpack a lot of hidden meaning, a lot of microaggressions that are like done throughout the book. And some not-so-microaggressions that are done throughout the group. I mean, there is straight hate crimes talked about in the book yeah. and racist slurs within the book. And one thing that I wanted to mention that we talked about yesterday was that in our episode To Kill Mockingbird, you mentioned that, like, a movie nowadays could not say the N-word with the... Hard R, yeah. And in this movie, it does. Yeah. But it's because the way that they did the film was all... I wanted to say black and white, but then we got Dr. Alberti's perspective. And that's one thing I really wanted to touch on was when we were talking to Dr. Alberti and he was like, you know, talking about the showing that we just did. He mentioned that the director states it's not in black and white because people see black and white as two separate colors. Rather, the movie is shot in monochrome, mono meaning one, and it's all different shades of gray. And we kind of also see that. And Dr. Yoey had mentioned how she noticed the complexions of Irene and Claire, the two main characters, changing throughout the movie. I mean, at first, Claire looks really, really pale. And Irene seems kind of darker. But in the book, they're supposed to be, like, similar complexioned. And, like, I feel like throughout the movie with the different light exposures, their skin tones kind of change. Like, Yeah, everybody's skin tone in this movie changes quite quite a bit and it's just kind of interesting to see how the director played with the lighting and uh and the shadows and everything in this in this black and white film in this black and white movie because we even talked about that in um to kill a mockingbird about Mm -hmm. how it should still be in black and white to kind of enhance enhance the storytelling and so they did it with this movie and actually this movie is really more film noir too, because they, the actresses were talking in the 
old like kind of accent you you know well and the piano so there's music throughout the movie and there's other movies that take place like during this time but they play modern music like moulin rouge is a musical and all the songs are new songs that they adapt to try to sound as if they would if they were made then but in this movie it's straight piano and Mm -hmm. jazz and like the piano intros uh there was a girl who was a student and i'm sorry if you're listening because i didn't catch your name but she mentioned how a lot of times in films, it fades to black when it goes to change. But in this film, it fades to white, like it overexposes to white it and is. then changes scene. Yeah, I made a note of that in uh, while watching it in my notes, too, because I, I thought that was very interesting as well, especially with when you're talking about a movie with race. Well, and racial passing. I mean, yeah. you're going from black passing to white, and then this movie is showing you exposure where... It's changing scenes, so it's passing through the scenes, changing from black to white as well. So it kind of, like, the director did a really good job at, like, reinstating through these little tiny pieces of the movie the themes of the movie. This is one of those movies where you have to watch it more than once because there's a lot of if-you-blink-you-miss-it type moments. Like, when Dr. Alberti was talking about when... uh, Irene's husband was, like, talking about the children and started talking about all the horrible things mm-hmm. happening in the world at that moment. And she was like, yeah, no, I don't want to tell my kids that. And he was like, well, I guess the women in this house don't want to hear that. I didn't even think about that he was talking about his younger son either mm-hmm. or about one of his other sons talking about how his younger son is, like, a woman or something or is too prissy and did you did you catch that when Dr. Alberti was talking about that? Because I first, thought he was referring to Claire and Irene being the women in the house. I thought he was just talking about women in general up until he said that moment that he was kind of talking about his son and, like, his favoritism and his probably internalized, like, homophobia of that. That was where it kind of, like... Oh, wow. I thought yeah. that he just meant the women in the house being Claire and Irene because... One thing that you learn reading the book, and I will say, I think it's shown good in the movie. It's just in the book, we have access to Irene's thoughts that we don't get in the movie. And Irene has this belief that Brian is cheating on her. Brian is Irene's husband with Claire, the other main character of the movie. And so I thought that that was reinforcing the idea of cheating when he says women in the house because Claire is over at their house so frequently. Yeah, and Dr. Yoey made a good point that you never know if he is or not. There's all this, like, circumstantial evidence, but it's never proved, and it's never exactly pointed out. You just kind of see, like, small glances, or they all just be talking or engaging with each other. But, you know, that's not exactly proof that they're cheating, and you see this all from Irene's point of view. I think one thing that also really helps readers throughout, like, looking into the passing and the movie is reading other people's thoughts for scholarly articles because it is so short and when you get a book, you can have access to those. But actually, I wanted to take a moment, so this is just going to be a quick pause from our discussion to mention our friend Zoe, who has a blog herself, and she did a literary analysis on passing that she posted in honor of the movie that she wrote a few years ago. So if you go on Instagram, you can find her blog's Instagram, which is literature and more blog. And from there, you can have access to her website that has her thoughts and everything. And just so you know, she is taking submissions. If anyone wants to, like, add to her blog, you can email her and you can have your work posted as well and be, you know, 
published in a sense. Yeah, we both are going to uh, add our pieces, some pieces that we have written to her blog too. So definitely hit her up. Well, but one thing, I read her analysis and I didn't even think about it until I read it. But a huge part of passing is the outfits, the way they dress, because it represents their class. And we talked about that with Dr. Yoey. And Zoe kind of dives in her analysis about um, the way that they dress, like representing their class. And that's why Claire and Irene are able to pass. But that's why Irene is able to only occasionally pass is because of the way she dresses, because she wears her hat and she keeps her eyes hidden. And that allows her to pass when it's convenient for her, as she would say. Yeah, I made note of that. Like, the first thing I noticed is especially the hat that she wore. And they did a good job with this in the movie, too. Like, because the hat is, I guess you can't technically tell what the actual color of the hat is. But it's a very light colored hat. So in the movie, it looks like a white hat. So I thought that that was something I made notice of, too. Yeah, and she uses it to, like, hide her eyes. And at the beginning, you have this awesome intro where... Claire recognizes Irene, but Irene does not know who Claire is. Mm-hmm. Well, I even made notice uh, of this, of like the camera angles and stuff. So usually when you're, the camera's on Claire, it's like Claire's in the middle. She's out in the open. She's wanting to be seen. And then if, every time it pans back to Irene, she, Irene is always like off to the side a bit or like a little bit, not exactly in the middle, but just slightly off skelter. So it kind of shows like she's off in the corner she's trying to be she's trying to hide she's trying to be hidden or just like Claire is just there well and that just plays into their personality types because I feel like both of the women and if you can disagree with me on this I feel like both of them envy each other because Irene wishes she was more carefree in the sense that Claire is but uh, Claire wishes she had more of the family life that Irene has. And it's not like that they, like, want to be each other, but they want to, like, compliment each other, if you know mm-hmm. where I'm going with this. Yeah, I made a note of that, too. Uh, the grass is always greener on the other side, because both women are always talking about, oh, well, Irene is, like, Claire is so beautiful, don't you think? She has, like, this beautiful life and stuff, and then Claire will be like, I'm not like you, Irene. I'm not as good-hearted as you and stuff like that. So you can tell that they're both just kind of wishing to either be with each other or be be each other almost in a way that they kind of... Well, and, like, their personalities are so different because Claire doesn't care. Claire almost has this, like, personality where she is so carefree because Irene's always like Claire like what's gonna happen if you do this or you know what will happen to you if this happens because that is actually a huge part of the story is that Claire is married to a racist he blatantly uses the n-word yeah and he actually calls Claire and I'm just gonna spell it out because I don't want to say it because I feel dirty just saying it but he calls her n-i-g short for the n-word And the reason he does it is he tells this story where when he first married Claire, when she was young and 18, she was white as snow. But then as the years go by, she keeps getting darker and darker. And so he told her to be careful because one day she was going to turn into a N-word. And she says, oh, will it really matter? Like if I was one or two percent African-American, would it matter? And he said, 
he said, well, I know that you're not. Like, he has, like, this certainty that he knows she's not, but she is. She's passing. That was just one of those very uncomfortable moments. And it's supposed to make you uncomfortable because you you know, you know that she is uh, white and not, like, she's not white. So, and he, and at first it was just kind of caught me off guard because he's like, oh, it wouldn't matter. But then he's like, yeah, no, because I know you're not. And you're just like, oh, oh no. And then it, it gets even more uncomfortable because Claire does kind of have this naivete to her where when Irene does ask her, like, well, what are you going to do if your husband ever finds out? She's like, oh, well, I'll be free and I'll just come and live with you and like that. But in my mind, I was like, are you sure about that? Because you've been lying to this man who claims he absolutely hates who you are, Mm -hmm. that you've been lying to him for years. You just think he's going to, like, let you go in annulment. No. Well, and they have a daughter together. Yeah. So, and I think it's interesting that in the movie, their daughter's never shown. Mm Mm-hmm. So, they have a daughter together, and that's one of Irene's arguments is, what about your daughter? Because if he finds out that you're black, then he's also going to find out that his daughter, you know, Is. is black. And he has stated, I hate them. He said, I hate them. Like, he's like, yeah, no, I don't dislike them. I hate them. That's, that's, that's exactly what he says. And he talks about, like, how they all they do is commit crimes and, like, all this other dirty stuff. But meanwhile, we get the other side, who is Brian, Irene's husband, who is telling his sons about, like, lynching. And he asks, his son asks him, he says, why do they do that? And he says, because they hate us. And so it's kind of like this parallel where we see John, who is Claire's husband, saying, because I hate them. And then we see Brian, who's saying, because they hate us, is why they do this. Yeah. It's very interesting to see how Brian interacts with his kids, too. Because it's... Irene is trying to protect them from everything. And then there's Brian, who is just like, show them the world. This is how it is. They they need to know. So that you have that duality between them. And you can already... At the very beginning, you can even kind of sense a rift in their marriage. Well, and I think... Part of it, though, is, too, is because Brian hates his job. He's a doctor, but he hates his job, and he wants to leave the U.S. He wants to move outside the U.S., and I almost feel like, and this is completely my interpretation, I feel like Brian tells his kids these stories, one, because I see his point of, like, they should know, they should be aware of what Mm -hmm. can happen, but also I feel like part of it is to kind of get under Irene's skin of, like, here's more reasons we should leave. I'm having to educate our kids about all this, like, horrible stuff we should go to somewhere that's more developed and less racist like here's some more arguments of why we need to leave do you think maybe it also could be because he's trying to convince his kids that maybe they need to leave so if he can convince his kids that they should leave that maybe irene would finally relent too yeah i i would agree with that i think that it's almost like a shock like factor of like because he has multiple arguments with irene where he's like i want to leave i want to move and she's like we can't Like, we need to stay here. And he's like, look at all this racism and hate crimes that's happening. What if it happens to our kids? Because Irene's husband is not passing. He's very dark. And her sons are very dark. So they could not be passing like her. She passes when it's convenient for her because she has the ability to. But her family could never. Maybe that's why she doesn't necessarily want to leave either. Is because she gets to almost have best of both worlds, I guess, you can say, because she can, because she can pass, 
uh, her husband and her family can't. So she can go to the stores and be treated nicely and get, uh, like, helped and with, you know, get, get to go to all the fancy places, whereas her other family, they, they can't do that. They can't yeah. experience that like she can. Well, exactly. And so one thing that I wanted to mention that um, the sociology professor that was there last night mentioned was uh, Joan Ferrante was the sociology professor. And she mentioned how Claire feels this white void. Like, she's passed as white. She's, like, lived her life as white, but she feels this void inside of her. And that's why she keeps coming back to Irene's family, because she, she even states, like, that she misses being around the black community in Harlem and she wants to be there with them. Yeah. I mean, it's in the book. It's one of like the first things written down. It's she, this is in a letter that she wrote to Irene. It's the first statement is for, I am lonely, so lonely. And then it ends around. It's like an ache of pain that never ceases. So she doesn't really feel connected to anybody else in her life or her husband or anybody else. You don't really see anybody else in her life from her new life that she created for herself, but it just kind of states right there that she's not happy. Well, and I think part of it too is because she abandoned her heritage. She abandons, you know, all of the things that she is and goes to be because she feels like it's going to be better. And she even asked Irene at the beginning, you know, well, why don't you pass? Like, because she thought she was passing when she first saw her because she sees her in a restaurant drinking, you know, water and stuff, trying to cool off on a hot day, assuming she's also passed, but she hasn't. Yeah. Sorry, my mind just kind of, I I had something to say and my mind just kind of (laughs) went off there for a second off the track. So one thing I wanted to state then, until you get back on. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, was the Negro Welfare League dance. Because in this scene, we have Hugh, who is a character, mm-hmm. and he asks Irene, while Claire and Brian are dancing, yes, Irene, if you could pass, why wouldn't you? And she has, like, a snapback, like a rebuttal, where she says it would be, it's easy for a black person to pass as a white person, but it's not so easy for a white person to pass for black. And he like responds like, I hadn't thought of that. And she's like, why would you? Because, you know, in the 1920s, why would you go the opposite, you know, like direction because they were seen as a lower class. Obviously we don't have those feelings, you know, nowadays, but it's like a thought. Yeah. It's, it's a, pretty big quote in that book because that's kind of almost how that conversation ends and it's it's kind of meant to be like one of those like mic drop moments where she's like well why should you why would you think of why would you think of that Mm -hmm. you know why would you want to be down a level when you're already Mm -hmm. as high as you can be well, and that's one of the things, too, is because Hugh and Irene are good friends. Well, if you th- yeah, it's kind of weird because she admires Hugh mm-hmm. a lot. You can tell that from how she thinks of him in the book, too, that she really, really does admire this man. And he's kind of, is it, would it be rude of me to call him kind of a Jack A? No. <laughs> Not at all. Um, so one thing I actually wanted to mention that Professor Joan of the sociology department said was that 
black passing for white confirmed oppression. Like people having to pass from being African-American to being white confirmed the oppression of the black community in our society. Yeah, it's, yeah. I think she gave a statistic. I can't remember what year the statistic came from, but she talked about like how at one point they did a survey and there was like 3 million people passing. Oh, yeah, no, no. Which they, they kind of laughed at the fact that they thought that that was a problem. That's like, oh, you should be scared. People are passing all the time and stuff like that. And then even uh, Dr. Aberti talked about um, like in the 70s before like what it, what what's what's one like ancestry.com or what's 20, oh yeah like, yeah something you and me or something like Genet- that it was just something about genetics like yeah. your genealogy yeah where you could get like tests done and stuff like that in the 70s and there's like some people who are like are you sure especially like down for, in the South. towards white people yeah. like they would ask the white you know are you sure you want to know because once you know if you're part of this like racial category you can't unknow you can't unknow yeah and people probably would start treating <laughs> you differently if they did know because there's lots of people who find out that they had someone in their family who was passing. Yeah, it's kind of it was interesting to hear those stories of who never knew people never knew. Well, and I think one thing that he said that went along with that comment is Dr. Alberti mentioned people see what they expect to see. We see Claire's husband as white because that's what we expect to see. Mm-hmm. We see you know Irene's husband as black because that's what we expect to see. But, like, the two of them, Claire and Irene, Claire says she's white, so we expect to see white. Yeah. Whereas Irene says she's African-American, so we expect her to be African-American. Yeah. And, you know. Didn't you also say that you used to get, um, like, people used to call you, like, a different race than what you were? Yeah. Um, if you look at pictures of me, I feel like it's definitely gone down but I used to get really really tan in the summer and my hair is very naturally dark and so people thought that I was Latino a lot uh every year in high school I got asked to join the Latino club (laughs) and I would have to politely tell them that I was not Latino uh (laughs) I have actually never done 23andMe though so I guess I technically could be I just wouldn't know but uh I was never told in my family that I was Latina I don't know although if y'all I don't know. Her dad, because she sent me a picture, exactly <laughs> like Taylor Lautner, so I wouldn't... <laughs> well, but we, um, my dad's always told me we had Native American mm-hmm. ancestry, Yeah. so, and that's where I get, like, my dark hair and, like, yeah. my more, like, tan complexion from, but, yeah, every year, and I remember, like, there was a point where I, like, had this boyfriend, and his dad started, like saying something about the Latino community and he said not to talk bad about your people and I was like I'm not Latino like like, what people I was like I was like I don't know who you're talking to because I'm not Latina but also I'm gonna leave this conversation because I don't appreciate anyone talking bad about any Any specific yeah that's insane but that's a topic we've discussed in uh Dr. Wilkie's class a lot is how people like forget about other racial categories because I feel like a lot of times it's seen as white and black but there's also the Latina community which spreads out beyond just Mexican like there's Colombian Argentinian like Chilean there's Spain like Spain everybody forgets about Spain poor Spain I know well (laughs) and 
but like also like people talk about Asian communities and there's so many like different Asian communities. You can be Vietnamese, like Chinese, Japanese. Did you see uh like the reporter who was talking with the main actor from Squid Game mm-hmm. and this is apparently has gone viral because he's a major and has been a major actor in Korea for years. And this reporter comes up to him and he's like, how does it feel to now be like world famous and everybody like watching you? And he's very polite about it. But everybody was like, that is very ignorant because he's a popular person. Just because he gets famous in America doesn't mean that he's now famous. He's always been famous. So it's just kind of like interesting to like see that in like real world time. Yeah, no, like, that's definitely, well, and actually, I went to California this summer, and I was born in California, and I went and ordered some horchata, which is, like, it's rice milk with cinnamon is, like, the basis of it, mm-hmm. and I love horchata, and a guy asked me, because he, I was with, like, my fiance's family, who's very, like, I love you guys, but you're all very pale, and so <laughs> I am too. I, it's fine. I'll, I'll admit it. I'm pale. <laughs> and the guy who I ordered it from was he looked Latino, and he asked me if I was Latina because of the way I ordered it. And I was like, No, I'm not. I just I I mean I love like Latin foods. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan. <laughs> I had my first empanada the other day, and it was so good. I'm not gonna lie. But getting back to, the, like, the topic, ooh, one thing I really, really wanted to mention about the movie, the crack in the ceiling, and I'm going to let yeah. you take it because you had a great analogy. So, in this movie, at first it's Brian that looks up at the ceiling, and then it just kind of, the camera pans up and you see this crack in the ceiling, and then it shoots another scene with uh, Tessa Thompson or Irene looking up at the ceiling, and the crack all of a sudden gets bigger and so at first I thought that it was supposed to be like a symbolic of their marriage of how it's kind of splitting apart but then the more that I thought about it, I was like I think it's more about her mental state and her mental stability just slowly kind of cracking away rather than uh about their marriage life see at first I thought it was about their marriage because the first time we see the crack in the ceiling is with Brian Mm -hmm. Brian lays down and it's right before he meets Claire and so that's why I thought it was about the marriage because, like, we see him look up and there's this crack. And then he meets Claire. And to, like, reinforce the idea that Irene thinks they're cheating, there's these awesome scenes where Irene comes down the stairs and she looks and it's Brian and Claire standing there. And then it, like, shows, like, her in between them. Like, it shows there's a camera view of Irene standing and you see each of them on each side of her looking back at her. And it's interesting because it kind of, like, plays on this idea where Irene is getting these feelings that they're like almost teaming up against her like Mm -hmm. that they're doing things behind her back yeah it's that crack because you can tell like she all she's always like asleep in the chair in the movie she's always like kind of waking up there's like the loud chime of the grandfather clock always like kind of waking her up and then the second time she sees that crack she's almost kind of in like this like drugged very drugged state so it's very like woozy like everything is kind of moving and spinning around so that's where I was kind of like maybe maybe it is about her mental stability just kind of slowly going down and you can kind of see the descent from the beginning of the movie where she's a little bit more happier until it's like the slow descent into like this almost depression and like sadness that she ends up with at the end of the movie 
So one thing I also wanted to touch on, which I thought was done amazing in the movie, and if you want to pull up the teapot quote where I, I start this, was there's a lot of foreshadowing. And this is a huge spoiler, but Claire dies at the end of the movie. But we have lots and lots of like foreshadowing before that. Irene accidentally pushes off a potted plant off her ceiling. Then she drops a teapot that shatters. And then at the very end, right before Claire dies, there's a cigarette that she drops. And we watch it in the movie, Falls to the Snow. But it's also within the book. And it's kind of like Claire is compared to the ember on the cigarette going out. Yeah, well, if you also, when uh, she broke the teapot, not the teapot, but the potted plant, when she kind of goes back and she's just like trying to fix the two Mm -hmm. broken pots together and you're... I remember thinking, like, you can't fix that. Why are you doing that? And then mm-hmm. you kind of think about it, like, you can't you can't fix what happens to Claire either. Or she's trying to put two halves back together that can never mm-hmm. that can never be put back together, which we can also kind of think about their relationship as well, or even her husband's relationship of trying to piece something back together, or even her mental stability. There's a lot, like, there's a, just a lot going on here. And I think one of the words that Alberti used, which was awesome, was uh, in prison. Because Irene plays everything so safe, she's in her house a lot. And it's like she, like, looks up at the crack. And it's like, you know, part of her stability breaking because she's almost imprisoned in her safety bubble yeah. within the home. So back to the quote from the teacup. This is one of those, like, blink and you'll miss it because... This is read really, really fast that it's kind of hard to catch mm-hmm. at times on what she's saying. And it's a bit of a long quote, so bear with me. Did you notice that cup? Well, you're lucky. It was the ugliest thing that your ancestors, the charming Confederates, ever owned. I've forgotten how many thousands of years ago it was that Brian's great-great-grand-uncle owned it. But it has not, but it has or had a good old hoary history. It was brought north by way of the subway. Oh, all right, be English if you want to and call it the underground. What I'm coming to is the fact that I've never figured out a way of getting rid of it until about five minutes ago. I had an inspiration. I had only to break it and I was rid of it forever. So simple. And I never thought of it before. Well, and I think that kind of plays into the uncertainty at the ending. So at the end of the book, again, this is a spoiler, so I'm so sorry. You don't actually know why Claire falls because her husband finds out that she is black Mm -hmm. and he charges into a party to confront her, which I think is shown really good in the movie because how he mentioned, you know, Claire's naiveness, being nervous. So it actually shows like Claire kind of almost ignoring because you can hear him clearly trying to find her. I don't think she was ignoring him. I think she was blatantly wanting to get caught. That was because she walked. She was like. She walks right she next walks to Irene. right next to Irene. Who's right, at a window. Who's at the window, right in front of the door, too. And she's, like, Claire never once, like, looks around or looks nervous and just deadpans right at the door, just all calm and stuff. Like, well, I guess she is nervous. You can see some fear in her eyes. But she wanted, uh, that's what I think. I well, think it's she almost like a, to get caught. It's almost like a glance because it's right before that the uh, Irene says, you know, what are you going to do if your husband finds out? Mm-hmm. So... The ending of the book kind of, like, ends with this uncertainty if Irene pushed her because Irene goes to put her arm, like, grab her arm, or if her husband pushes her, or if she faints and falls off because of all of the, like, you know, stress that would come with her. Or there's even another theory that Claire jumped herself. Like, Claire killed herself in that moment, too. That's also another theory that people have. And since we have you know, insight into Irene's thoughts in the book. It's this 
thing where uh, Irene's not sure if she pushed her. She doesn't know. She, it's like she's blocked that memory out. And you kind of see it in the movie, but I feel like it's way better in the book because, like, in the mm-hmm. movie, you don't have, like, those thoughts of, like, oh, did I? But she states to the police who asked her because Brian is convinced the husband pushed her. And Irene says, no, I'm quite sure she fainted. Yeah. Because um, she dies. She, she dies. She, she dies. dies. That's, that's how it ends. Um, but there's a lot of... Dr. Yoey made a good point about um, about the ambiguity of this all. Like, she wished that it would have been more slow. But I kind of thought, you know, it kind of happens all so fast, like, in that moment, which I think made it better for it to be ambiguous. Am- ambiguous. I'm terrible at saying that, <laughs> that word in general. <laughs> yeah, and, like... You know, there's just a lot that goes into this book. But she, Irene does not know. She doesn't know if she pushed her. And I think in the book, it's more described like if me and Alyssa were sitting next to each other and I just reached over and grabbed her arm that's closest to me. But in the movie, it's depicted like she reaches her whole so, arm across. You know, like it's like that, like the mom car thing. Yeah. Where the mom's driving and then accidents happen and she kind of reaches over to grab for her kid. Yeah. It's that kind of reach over, grab, and, like, tries to pull pull in or, like, keep back or something like that. Yeah, so one thing that we actually wanted to do was just talk about what we think happens at the end. And I personally... I wonder, because I don't like to be sure, because I actually don't know, and I think that's what's done so well in the movie. And even Dr. Yoey said, quote, effective. Like, it was an effective ending because it followed the book so closely at the end. And she even made a comment about the dialogue in the movie being, like, exactly to a T. So, but I wonder if Irene went to reach over to pull Claire out of the way of her husband who was charging at her and because they were so close to the balcony that when she p- tries to push her out of the way, she pushes her over. That's what I thought that happened because I, because you do see like the brief moment and the camera where it kind of, you, you can see Irene's arm just kind of shoot out to grab her and stuff. And that's what, that's kind of what I thought. Cause in the heat of the moment, you're going to forget about the complete window being open behind you. So you're going to reach out and grab for your friend and just kind of, well, there's that off. frame also where all you see is Claire's husband, like, reached out. Like, he was going to push or grab Claire. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you see, like, him reach, but, like, he fills up the entire frame. So you don't see any part around him of what could have, like, indicate. And I think that's one thing the movie did really well is, like, it kind of shows each thing, like, so separately that you're unsure. Because you never see Claire fall. You don't see her fall off the balcony. You just see her at the end, like, bottom. Yeah, well, the thing is, too, which Dr. Yoey also said, is that there's all the circumstantial evidence that Irene did push her out that balcony on purpose. For example, with the teapot, when she says, all I had to do was break it to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Or with, um, there was another conversation that her and Claire had where Claire was like, I'm not like you, Irene. I would do anything to, or hurt anybody to get what I want. Yeah, and because one thing that Irene fears is that if John found out that Claire was passing, he would leave her and that would free her to go after her husband. But a lot of scholars have an idea that 
Irene is actually projecting onto Brian. Like she feels like Brian is desiring Claire because she herself desires Claire. And there's some tidbits of this in the movie, especially um, that one scene where Claire, was it Claire that reaches over and like grabs Irene's hand? Irene grabs Claire's hand when they're at the, the Negro Welfare League dance. It shows like Claire standing there trying to find a partner and Irene reaches and grabs her hand. Yeah, and so there's just, like, this kind of brief moment where they just kind of both look into each other's eyes very soulfully, you know, very, like, longingly. And the bench scene where they're sitting outside of just admiring the cool day, and Irene is sitting down, and Claire has to go because John's coming home early, and she stands up, and you get this light behind her where Irene is, like, looking at her almost, like, as if she was angelical. Mm -hmm. And you see, like, them, like, connect eyes. And I'm pretty sure they make comments at that moment about how pretty they think each other are. Yeah. Irene is always talking about, it's like, Claire looked really pretty today, don't you think? And and just comments like that about how pretty she was. And like I said, you can already tell from the very beginning that there is this kind of rift between Claire and her husband, Brian. Like, he talks about, like, oh, well, sex is a joke. Well, and but that also plays into, like, one of the main differences between the book and the movie is that in the book, Irene and Brian have separate beds, mm-hmm. which was normal at that time. But in the movie adaptation, the 2021 movie adaptation, they share a bed. Yeah, and they, they, they'd still try to separate them because when they first get into bed, they both face the opposite directions. Yeah. That's something to make note of. But that kind of all plays into it. But it's just this huge thing where Irene already has this disconnect from her husband, like, sexually. But then, you know, at the beginning when Claire asks Irene to, like, unzip her dress so she can change, it's like she hesitates. And then she just, like, looks at her admiringly. There's a lot of, like, sexual tensions between Irene and Claire's glances. That's what we also talked about at the beginning when we said passing, not just about meaning passing for being a different race, but also passing to maybe be uh, straight or, you know, when these two girl women could be in love with each other, they're trying to pass for not being that, trying to, it's like kind of passing a different sexuality too. Oh yeah, well, and I feel like you can definitely see that. I mean, um, it wasn't uncommon for women to kiss each other on the cheek but there is the scene where Claire kisses Irene on the cheek and like it feels there's definitely a lot of suspense and like anticipation built up in the film like you get uncomfortable a lot because you're like what if when Irene's like out in the beginning and she's going out you're like what if someone notices she's African-American what if someone notices or like you know Claire just running around doing whatever she wants you're like what if, you know, someone sees you that finds out and, like, tells your husband? Yeah, it is it is this just kind of, like, thing where another girl who watched this movie with us made an amazing point. And, again, I don't I don't remember their her name either. But they said that Claire represents the worst part of Irene's self in the fact that where Dr. Yoey even said that maybe the part of the reason why if Irene did push Claire out of that window was because she would come back. Because if Claire got out of her marriage, Mm -hmm. that means Irene would have to face her feelings towards Claire. 
mm-hmm. and that Irene did not want to do that at all. Oh, uh, yes, I would agree with that. Like, it's the worst version of Irene is Claire because she does occasionally pass. And I feel like, you know, she's occasionally passing, but like the more you do it, the more normal it becomes for you. Yeah. And I, and Claire does it all the time. I think Irene was just kind of dipping her toes into it. And it's like, oh, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But always kind of wondered what would happen if if she did. You know? She was always, like, never too afraid to take that final step or to push into it. And she already had her life back at home. But, you mm-hmm. know, I think there's always, in everybody's lives, there's, like, this what if that always kind of hangs around our heads. Like, what if I did this? What if I did that? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, overall, I would say the movie followed the book very, very closely. Yeah, so another thing that I did want to kind of say is that kind of like an overall message I thought, of course, and I thought of this in the shower because shower thoughts are the best thoughts, <laughs> honestly. Um, so it's, it's this book is really all about ambiguities of like life, happiness, and love. We don't really know who we are, like, anything about ourselves, really. But the only thing that we do know is how we will end. We're all going to die eventually. So it's kind of interesting that there's all these different nuances and different, like, ways of looking at these two characters. And then one of them does end. So maybe does, does anything even really matter at the end then does anything that Claire did ever matter if now that she's done well even going off that you don't know how you're gonna die Mm -hmm. like it kind of the ambiguity at the end you don't know how you're gonna die yourself but again the only thing that is certain in life is you will you will eventually die As, as bleak as it is but this is a bleak it is a bleak book to read but it's also kind of like that finality of that Like, that's the only, I guess, quote-unquote, reassuring thing. That's not as reassuring as we'd hope it would be. But that that will happen. So we don't know what we're going to do in the future. We don't really... We don't even remember half of our past. You don't remember what we did in the crib. But we do know what we're going to eventually end up doing. Or what we hope to do. What we aspire to do. What we aspire to do, yeah. But you never know. So I think that was just kind of also like a little, little tidbit to kind of put on there too but overall would highly recommend the book would highly recommend the movie definitely let us know your thoughts we have our email open to english majors one analysis and that's with the numbers two and one not spelled out just the actual numbers and then we (laughs) (laughs) and then we have recently started a TikTok, which is spelled the same way. It's two English majors, one analysis. Uh, we're kind of awkward, but I think that's what makes our show a little more fun. Watch our cringy dances. And <laughs> <laughs> but And then we also have our Instagram, two English majors, one analysis. You're free to message us there. And don't forget to go support our friend Zoe, who has her blog and her Instagram is literature and more blog at Instagram. You can find her website there for the link. And see her ideas on passing as well as hopefully future work from me and Alyssa ourselves. And once again, I think we just want to say thank you to everyone that's been supporting us. Yes, thank you so much. Please check out the book and the movie. It is, it is really good because it's not a big Hollywood movie. So it's very avant-garde and very nice to watch. So it's a very yeah. pretty movie. 
thank you especially to Dr. Yoe and Dr. Alberti for letting us, you know, sit in on the film and the cookies. <laughs> cookies and the Pepsi, yep. And we look forward to all of our listeners for the next episode. We'll be on Good Almonds, and we're actually doing something kind of different this time. We're going to try to split it up into two parts. So we're going to watch half of the series and do it on half of the TV show, and then the other half is... So it's going to be on December 6th and December 20th. Am I correct? Uh, I believe so. I'd have to double-check my calendar. I know the 6th is correct, but... Yeah, the 6th and 20th. Okay. So we're going to split it up into two parts because Good Almonds is a little thick for us to get through with finals coming up in a few weeks. We're we're still college students and we work, so. Exactly. (laughs) So we're going to be splitting it up half and half. So we'll do half the book, half of the series because it is not a movie. It is a TV show that is on Amazon Prime. So if you have Amazon Prime, start watching Good Almonds. It's very good. I've seen it. I loved it. See, I have not seen it and I have not read it. So... It'll definitely be something that's, like, new for me. But I know the premise of it because it's such a popular thing. But we're really excited to do Good Omens. Yes, it's very funny. I'm I'm excited for it. I've had the book for a while. Never got into reading it. I watched the TV show first, so I'm going to be extremely Ooh, fun. Yeah. reverse. Yeah. All right. So, uh, once again, thank you for listening to Two English Majors, One Analysis a show where we analyze literature and reference it to pop culture and movies. We're your hosts, Alyssa and Ashley. Bye. Bye. Lucky Land Slots, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.